My name is Claire Spencer of Chatham House and I was asked, uh, and it's a great privilege, to chair this meeting today. Uh, the reason for the delay, as you will have seen, was this almighty scrum outside the building uh, of masses of people hoarding over European integration or something, which I find quite extraordinary. I didn't know there was such an interest in that. But I apologise, that's one of the reasons we're starting late. Uh, but it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening talking about the economics of Palestinian and Israeli peace. And I think you're also open to questions as to what sort of peace, but this is really focusing on the economics of the situation rather than necessarily the politics, although, as we all know, um, these things are intertwined. Um, I would encourage, since my mobile's just gone off, for you to put them on silent, which may uh, I will deal with mine when I finish speaking. Uh, but Efrain Kleiman, who is here this evening, Professor Kleiman, is Don Patinkin Emeritus Professor of Economics at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. is also a graduate of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and holds a PhD from this very institution, so he knows it well. He has served with the Israel Finance Ministry and he joined the Economics Department of the Hebrew University in 1963. So he will have overseen a very long period not only of Israeli economic history, uh, but those... To listen? I'm too long in the tooth, but you shouldn't have read the date. Sorry? <laughs> well, I'm sure that, that means you have, I hope, the eye of an historian as well as an economist. And I think the rest... <laughs> The rest may well come out in your intervention this evening, uh, but Professor Kleiman has very kindly said that if he gets too much of an economist, and there are terms you do not understand as he is speaking, he's going to introduce for a period uh, certainly not exceeding an hour and probably considerably less, so there's plenty of time for questions. But do feel free to put up your hand if he uses a term or is explaining something which is not uh, as well explained as you would like it to be, and he will notice this and pause and explain uh, exactly what your query is at the end of his paragraph, as he's put it. Now, as a political scientist, of course, this problem never assails us. We all understand politics. But uh, as a non-economist, I think it will be extremely useful for him to do that. And then afterwards, we will hopefully have plenty of time for your more in-depth questions. So I'll hand over to Professor Kleiman now for his presentation. Thank, Thank you, Claire. Uh, would you care to take your specs? Yes, I might be able to see. No, I need to see. I might move around. Oh, that's all right. Uh, good evening. Uh, I'm in a curious situation. I don't know. I'm sure that there are people here who know a lot about the place I'm talking about, and some people who don't know, who know little, some people who know economics, some people who don't. Do you mind if I take off my jacket? I mean, I tucked it up in your honor, but I see that you people don't, don't insist on that. Take the tie off as well. <laughs> Just look, I'll do the whole 50s, uh, not to worry. Anyhow, uh, and uh, so what I, what I suggested is if it's something which, some technicality or something, some factual thing which you don't understand or you, what I'm talking about, wave or give me some sign and I'll try to answer that before question and answer time. I mean. So uh, what I'm talking about you can, you can see and uh, let's go to I want to show you the place we are talking about. So, except for the bunch at the top, uh, this is what used to be mandatory Palestine under British uh, rule between uh, the First World War and 48. Uh, the bunch at the top is what's called the Golan Heights, which were occupied by Israel. They belong to Syria, so they don't belong to our story. Now, of that, if you look at that, you'll see that this is the Gaza Strip. And this is what used to be called, what is called 
the West Bank, but it's not the West Bank of Palestine, because that would include also Israel. It's really the, a shortened term for the West Bank of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which had two, had two banks, so to say. Uh, it's also sometimes called Samaria and Judea, which was introduced by Mr. Begin for political reasons, but the truth is that these are the traditional English names. And paradoxically enough, uh, Lord Caradon, the author of uh, Security uh, Council Decision 242, which uh, called on Israel to <coughs> give up the occupying this, uh, these territories, when he was a young man, as, as uh, Hugh Foote, he was one of the brothers of Michael Foote, he was uh, district commissioner of Samaria. So these are the traditional really English terms. Anyhow, to give you some idea of what we are talking about, uh, all right? That gives you some proportion. This is the map, again, with the bulge which shouldn't be there, uh, superimposed on the map of Britain, so you get some sort of idea of the size of the place. Now, uh, this is the, to start, I'm sorry, I will try not to over, overload you with statistics, but some are necessary, and I prefer that to these uh, uh, colored graphs, which it's, uh, this gives you some idea of the relative size of the Palestinian economy, in other words, of the, of the, of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. You have to realize, uh, after the 48th war, in which Israel came into being, uh, these two areas were not included. Uh, they were neither awarded to Israel by the United Nations decision, nor were they occupied by Israel. Uh, the Gaza Strip, sorry, the Gaza Strip was administered by Egypt, uh, while the West Bank was uh, annexed by Jordan. So, and there was no connection between these two areas. They were both by Palestinians, but the only connection was going from uh, Jordan to Egypt and from there to Gaza or something. So there was no trade, nothing. So this is, the, now, just to give you an idea of this the size of this Palestinian economy, the West Bank and Gaza altogether in 1968, compared to the Israeli, to, the, to, to Israel. So the <coughs> population was about one third of the Israeli one, but what really I want to emphasize are two things. One is this, the GDP, the gross domestic product, was 3.3% of the Israeli ones, which means was one, the economy was one third years the Israeli economy, uh, the population was one third. And of course the result of that was that the income per head, the GNP, that includes also uh, some things which are not produced locally, I'll say something about it later, that's really the income, national income per head was 10% of the Israeli one. Now what happened next was the following, that these areas were unilaterally integrated with Israel following the 68th war. There was a debate in Israel whether to integrate them with the economy or not. That's a long story and I won't go into that. This integration, first of all, it was, it was uh, uh, unilateral. I mean, Palestinians were not asked about it. Some were happy, some were not happy, but that doesn't, uh, is neither here nor there. It was also biased in favor of certain Israeli vested interests. For example, the Israeli farm law, which was very strong in those days, was afraid of the competition. So integration, yes, integration, but with some reservations that certain agricultural goods are not allowed into Israel and so on. Uh, on the other hand, Israel was rel relatively, Israel was a very small economy, but relatively a huge one compared to the Palestinian ones. You've seen 33, uh, 33 times as big. So, and there was com a complete, f today it's difficult to imagine, those of you who follow things, uh, not to mention those of you who have been there, uh, Israel was a relatively, uh, com it was completely free movement of people, vehicles, and most goods. 
most goods because uh, this, uh, this farm produce was uh, restricted. Um, and there was also, the Palestinians enjoyed also access to markets in Jordan and beyond, what was called the Open Bridges Policy. Again, it's not out of any good intentions. It was rather that Israel wanted to deflect the farm produce of the Palestinians from its own markets by enabling them to access other markets and also to allow them to have a living because otherwise uh, Israel would have had to support them. Uh, and uh, just to give you some idea of what, what it meant, uh, Gaza oranges, until the Khomeini Revolution, used to go as far as Tehran. They went to Jordan and then further down, further up, and there were many, ma many such uh, trades. Uh, the, 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 the nice thing, if you want, or rather the, the, uh, the uh, nasty thing was that not, not only Israel restricted, uh, put restrictions on, on the farming uh, of, the, of the Palestinians so that it won't compete with their own, but the Jordanians had exactly the same feeling. So they allowed uh, Palestinian farm produce as long as it did not constitute more than 50% uh, of, of that year's uh, crop. Because according to their calculations, the Palestinians needed 50 per half of the crops, the crops for their own subsistence. And if they exported more, they either exported uh, Israeli goods or else they exported their own goods at, but substitute them from Israeli goods. And that was against the, the Arab boycott and so on. These things, and the same about the, the uh, restrictions on the movement of, uh, of, of exports of, uh, of movement of farm produce to Israel were more observed in the breach than really than, than obse observing. Because it's very difficult when tomato arrives in the supermarket. Oh dear tomato, where did you grow? On a Palestinian farm or on an Israeli farm? I mean. And the same was on the other side. But still, <coughs> So this also was part of the addition. They had this market before. And the markets to the east of the Jordan were, but they were not completely denied to them, despite the fact that they now had this extra, very large, by their standards, Israeli market. So the result was, if we look 18 years later, there is some stupid problem which I have to explain. Comparisons have to be done either on uh, averages of even years, or either between even years, or between odd years. And this reason is a very curious one. So I'll mention that <coughs> olives, olive trees, have got the habit of giving one year a very large crop and a much, much smaller next year. But it's not individual for each tree. The good crops come on in even years and the bad crops come on odd years. <laughs> That's a fantastic thing. If we'll have time, I'll tell you what used to be the explanations and apparently are not. But, uh, but it's it can be one to 10. So, this, so one, one cannot compare even and odd years. Anyhow, this is before the outbreak of the First Intifada, and you see a considerable change. You see that the, the GDP now is only is one fifteenth that of Israel, not one thirtieth. And that parallel with that, the GNP per capita is now between one fifth and one quarter. Now we have to remember, incidentally, that because of demographic differences, even if each Palestinian worker or person employed would have earned the same as the parallel Israeli one the uh, income per capita would have been no more than 56-57% of the Israel. And the reason is the very high proportion of kids and the very low participation in the labor force of women. So 22 or 23% is quite a, is quite a narrowing of the, of, of the gap. It's exactly incidentally as one, just look at the, at the lower part, forget the, the top part. This just gives you the even longer period because that includes even the first intifada, first 24 years of occupation, 
and this is the GNP per capita in 1992, as a ratio of GNP per capita in 1968. And you can see that in the Palestinian territories, it nearly, it nearly quadrupled. Well, in Israel, it uh, nearly doubled. It was m more than twice as, uh, the growth was twice as much in the Palestinian territories than in Israel. Now, you may say that was due because Palestinians went to work in Israel, so that isn't real development or whatever. If you look over to the right hand side of the, of the, of the, uh, of the table, this is GN GDP per capita, this is gross domestic product that does not include wages earned outside the Palestinian economy. And that grew less quickly, but still nearly trebled, while the Israel one exactly was more or less doubled. Now, if that surprises you, especially those of you who are not economists, this is exactly a textbook case of the results of economic integration between a small, poor, relatively poor economy and a big, relatively richer one. So th that, should, that shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us, but the effect was very, very, very strong. Now I'm going to jump over one, uh, over one uh, table, if you don't mind, because I think we don't need it. Uh, right. Now, this rapid growth was despite these various restrictions, and I'll mention some of them, which I haven't, I haven't spelled them out. I'll mention them when they were being removed. And I have to quote you a man who later became the Lord Mayor of Gaza after the Palestinian Authority was established, speaking 21 years almost to the day today at the conference. Unfortunately, he passed away um, already some years ago. Uh, so the later on Shoah said when he spoke of this growth and he spoke about the Gaza Strip, which grew less rapidly than the West Bank, said that this was not because of the goodwill of the Israeli government, it might have even been perhaps despite the bad will of the Israeli government. It, it was like this because the laws of economic work. It was not a question of policy. Had there been a policy of starvation, the situation would have been different, but it was just what happens when you have this sort of integration between, when you remove the barriers to trade. Now, this really means that what we had there were certain attributes of a peace economy. Open borders for trade. Look, I always try to tell people, when people in Israel used to complain our, our peace with Egypt is a cold peace. And I used to say, my dear lady, peace is not about kissing, it's about not shooting. Mm -hmm. So this is more than about not shooting. If you've got open borders for trade, open borders for labor, now this, this, this is, you may say that's not peace proper. I'm not going, I don't know what peace proper is, I can debate it, but these are certain attributes of peace. I think this we can, we can take, uh, we can agree. Uh, and this produced almost textbook case of the results of economic integration, despite the fact, you see, usually you would expect under these circumstances for labor to flow from the Palestinian economy to the Israeli one, for capital to flow from the rel relatively capital-rich country, in this case Israel, to the poorer Palestinian one, and the simple goods, labor-intensive goods to be exported to Israel, capital exported goods, intensive goods to be exported to the Palestinian economy. Now, the truth is that this is not exactly what happened. There, was no, no, there were no capital exports from Israel to the Palestinian economy. And there were a number of reasons for that. The most important really was that, uh, first of all, there was tremendous uncertainty what's called regarding who is going to be the sovereign, or who is going to be ruler tomorrow. I mean, nobody thought at that time that this situation would go for 40 odd years. So uh, there was tremendous uncertainty. Now, you don't invest your money in, in real things, in a factory, in machinery, and so on, unless you know that you can be able to produce that and so on. As a matter of fact, not only were there was, uh, were no Israel investment, there was also a question of legislation. There were certain uh, 
subsidies to investment which uh, Israelis, Israeli firms could get if they invested in certain uh, relatively desolate or poor localities. So this was not extended to the Palestinian territory. But the truth is that there were no, uh, there were, uh, there were very little in Palestinian investment at the same time. Very little, for exactly the same reason. Because, uh, now there were other reasons as well. And I mentioned that one was, as I mentioned already before, there were restrictions on agriculture, but there was also a not an, op not an open, not a, a formal policy of preventing the establishment of plants which will, uh, industrial plants which will compete with Israeli plants. So how does what they've done? The agriculture was easy because it was part of the Israeli, uh, we had plant agriculture, there were quotas for Israeli producers as well, so one could fit that in a, in a tighter straitjacket, uh, the Palestinians as well. But in the case of the industry of manufacturing plants, there was last, no such thing. What, what, what was, however, you needed licenses, especially in the capitalities. You need license to import machinery to set up the plant. And if somebody wanted to, to start, start up a plant, establish a, a plant which would compete with an Israeli industry, and that industry pressed the local military governor, he could wait till doomsday to, to get an answer. And that was in the years where Palestinians still shied away from uh, appealing to the Israeli Supreme Court. They thought that that was accepting uh, occupation. So uh, uh, this was another reason. I, uh, but still, I think that it's uncertainty by itself. And there was a one, one third one. Labor moved very quickly. There was something similar in the unification of Germany. Labor moves tremendously quickly. Financial capital moves even quicker by by the internet, by telegram, by telephone. Real capital is a different story. And, uh, uh, but labor, especially in the case, if I allow me to go back for a moment to the map. <coughs> if we consider some other present here, uh, the distance to an Israeli uh, prospective employer was often much shorter than to a prospective employer somewhere in the Palestinian territories. So labor moved, I mean, the guy took his shovel and he walked over the wadi, there was no physical border in those days, and uh, looked for the farmer on the other side and said, would you, would you be ready to employ me? You have to understand that uh, there was not only considerable unemployment uh, in the Palestinian territories, part of it went back to the time of Jordanian war. And secondly, uh, the war of 67, the Israeli occupation, resulted in the withdrawal from, from the Palestinian territories of a source of employment and income, which was the Jordanian army. So uh, that again made the situation more difficult, people unemployed. And finally, there is something which is typical of traditional peasant societies, which is what we call disguised unemployment. Disguised unemployment means, imagine, that's mainly on farm, imagine a farm, and there's, uh, I don't know how many men there, fathers, sons, whatever, and uh, they go and work in the field. No, nobody shirks and uh, stays in bed. But if one of them would have stayed in bed, the output wouldn't have been significantly diminished. That's called disguised unemployment. Now, what happened was that uh, this access to this labor market also siphoned off this, uh, this disguised unemployment. And this had a very interesting thing. This had some social changes, which unfortunately very little has been written about them. One is, first of all, it freed peasants from the, the suddenly people had money in their pocket who never had real money in their pocket. They were freed of taking loans from the local 
landlord or for the local merchant or whoever. These were people who didn't even go to bankers. The bankers wouldn't have given them a loan. And the other, and very symbolically, incidentally, as I said symbolically, the, you know, the, the first intifada was a popular uprising. But what turned it from demonstrations, uh, not much more violent than what we saw here below, into a, 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 a popular uprising, was the first manifesto of the intifada. And the first manifesto of the intifada was written by two brothers, electricians. At least one of them was an electrician. Now, they were not usual electricians. They belonged to a rather left-wing small party. They were highly politically conscious. But still, 10 years, 20 years before that, nobody there would have listened or would have followed directives given by some unknown two electricians or something of this sort uh, writing a manifesto. So this was part of the social change. The other thing was the empowering of women. And that was very interesting. The men went to work in Israel. Uh, they used to come back on the weekend where Israeli, many Israeli businesses, factories did not operate, or farms and so on, so they oppressed in Israel. So they could do some pottering around uh, the family farm. And in the high seasons, they quite often took some days from work. They usually worked either in construction or in farming <coughs> in Israel. Many worked also in services, but uh, this was the main types of employment. So they would take off for a few days uh, and do some of the hard work. But for every day, farming, uh, the, for this, the farm had to rely on the kids who were too young to go to work in Israel, or the old man, the father or something, of the, the grandfather, and the person who ran them was the mother. So there was, a, again, it was very little research, and I think it's a fascinating subject. Unfortunately, there's been reversing them, but it was a fascinating subject to see this empowerment of, uh, of women. Uh, May I add, incidentally, there was one other restriction which I didn't mention, and it's rather important. And this is that uh, almost all imports to the Palestinian economy uh, came to, they still are coming through, Israeli air and seaports. So the, as usually the, the, the rule, customs on them were collected in these places. And by default, originally, they, start, they, went, they went to the Israeli treasury not to the treasury, to any treasury of the Palestinians. They didn't have an administration, but there was an Israeli administration <coughs> under military rule, which later was called the civil administration, which didn't mean that there were civilians, but they were dealt with the civil aspects, civilian aspects of the, of the equation. And they could have done with that money for development and so on. They didn't get it. Uh, one of them was very, very proud that he managed to get out of the Israeli treasury uh, the uh, customs which are collected on, uh, on motor vehicles, which are rather high in Israel. He got that, but the rest went to the Israeli treasury by default. And after 75, we introduced value-added tax, which are very large sums. And value-added tax on imports, again, collected in the harbors, and value-added on sales of Israelis to Palestinians. So all that they did not, they did not receive. This was the situation, and uh, as I said, there was uh, nevertheless this very rapid growth now, let me jump now to Oslo. I only want to talk about the future, but one can learn about the future by looking at the past, because it's really reversal to the God knows what degree. Now, I don't think, to remind, don't think I have to remind us here what's Oslo. It was the 
It was an agreement between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation, Liberation Organization for the setting up of a Palestinian authority which would administer uh, the Palestinian territories. So this was the idea. Now, it, what it did, as far as economic is concerned, I use the term here that it legalized the economic shotgun marriage of 1967. But nobody asked the Palestinians. Now, uh, there was an agreement that's rather interesting. They, they, uh, I have in due disclosure. I was involved in that, in negotiating it. So you, can, you should take my, what I'm saying with certain reservations if you want. Uh, so uh, now, it was very interesting. Neither side wanted at that stage an economic border or shied away from having an economic border because such a border might have, might have traced a political border. And neither Israel nor the Palestinians wanted it. Now, when you don't have a border, then the only possible economic arrangement between two separate entities is an economic union, is a customs union, for a very simple reason. Otherwise, one of the partners can import something without duties, uh, and then it will go to the, it will seep into the other economy and to uh, play havoc with the customs policy of the other of the other economy. Consumers will gain, but uh, still. Uh, also, and that's serious, part of the thing of, uh, of a customs union or a common uh, customs, it's not just customs, it's uh, also standards of quality and so on. And some things, they again are used as what's called non tariff barriers to protect some local domestic industries, but, um, uh, but also they sometimes also protect. Sometimes they really protect health and things of this sort. So, so there was an agreement of a common customs uh, envelope. Why not a com customs union? Well, for the simple reason that the union with Israel at that time was politically completely unacceptable in the Palestinian society. So it was called common customs envelope. Lest you think that such idiocy was only on one side, I can tell you that we negotiators on the Israel side were not supposed to use the terms imports or exports because somebody decided that imports and exports are only between sovereign states. Some lawyer probably in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So on one, on one occasion we had to, because otherwise we would have had to, to write six pages, we put imports and exports in inverted commas. Anyhow, uh, now uh, you can see that the, 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 what the agreement also included was the phasing out of restrictions on exports of farm produce. They were supposed to be completely phased out within four years. Each year, more and more would be allowed. Uh, the authority to license manufacturing plants, Israel gave it up, it abdicated. At the moment, it, 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 it uh, transferred certain areas to the, Palestinian, to the Palestinian authority. I'm sorry, can I move that? I see that you can't see, but I don't know if I can. That's, that's okay. Sure. Uh, there was a clearance mechanism uh, set up for remittance of the customs and value-added uh, value tax revenues. Now this used to be the most maligned, uh, I think, uh, part of the agreement, of the protocol, because, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And somebody discovered, one of the uh, advisors of the person discovered that there was an agreement from 1910 between the Union of South Africa and Lesotho by which uh, there was a different calculation. On top of that, Lesotho also got 14% over and above these sums. It was a subsidy of South Africa to Lesotho, but they thought that somebody there thought it was automatically with that arrangement. And uh, for a long time, this was a source of Palestinian grievances. I don't think it's any longer, because surprisingly, as I mentioned to you, 
This is the one part of the, of the Paris Protocol which works superbly until this day. There were two occasions. One in 1997 when Mr. Netanyahu stopped transferring money for about two or three weeks after some particularly gruesome suicide bombing in the middle of Jerusalem where incidentally the teenage daughter of my neighbors got killed. Uh, the other was after the outbreak of the Second Intifada where the argument was this is giving these people money to buy arms against us because there was not a popular uprising any longer. So, but on the whole, this worked beautifully, smoothly. There were very few hitches on that, and it provides a large part of the Palestinian Authority's budget. Uh, lately, the sum transferred annually was more than one billion dollars. Milliard. I'm sorry, did you say milliard or billion? How many, how many zeros? Yeah. How many zeros? Nine. One thousand millions. Billion. 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 All right. Same as the Americans. All right because we are still on millions, I'm sorry, we follow the French on that. So, and there was uh, hopes for very rapid economic growth after that. You have to realize what, <coughs> why. Uh, on one hand, on one hand, uh, there was the removal of restrictions which I mentioned. There was the alarm of a semi-independence. Suddenly we've got our own authority, or at least autonomous or something, and there was such an alarm. Uh, there was uh, financial assistance from what's called the donor countries quite large at that time. And there were the hopes the Palestinian diaspora will come and invest and help in the economy and so on. Thank you. Very efficient. Now, uh, the trouble was that Oslo was predicated on gradualism. On what? On gradualism. The idea was that things which seem to be unacceptable today might become acceptable if the two sides get used to living with each other. I'm not living, living, they lived, people individually lived with each other before, but in the sense of the, with the, the two entities, politically and so on. But uh, having, uh, gradualism has got also, uh, harbors also a great, a great uh, danger, that it provides opportunities from whoever wants to sabotage it, on both sides, on either side, to do it. And that's exactly what happened. So, uh, it went on, if you want the names of it, one was a, Israeli physician of uh, South African extraction who took a gun and started shooting people in the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron. Uh, the other, and the other one was the response of the Hamas to that, which was um, suicide attacks on public transportation, incidentally, which were the background to the assassination of Itzhak Rabin. Uh, because some people uh, credited him, so if I may say, or debited him with that. Uh, so, now the growing Palestinian violence and the severity of Israeli repression outweighed the removal of the, the effects of the removal of Israel restrictions. And what happened was, and there were a large number of things, there were more and more border closures in a way. Oh, the border was still open, but uh, one could do that. Gaza at some stage was fenced in, physically, technically fenced in. Uh, and then uh, Palestinian workers were progressively excluded from Israeli, from the Israel labor market. And uh, security checks on good entering Israel and the arrangement, which I'll mention in a second, for these goods to enter, were equivalent, to, these were non-tariff barriers, which were equivalent to a, to a customs duty as far as economic movement of goods is concerned. Uh, the system was, and still is followed in many places, that at some stage, the movement of, of vehicles across the, what used to be the Green Line was stopped. So goods had to be brought to a certain point, a crossing point, before that, uh, you would see some guy 
late at night with a little jalopy with sort of half a, a whole a, a dining room which somebody orders in Tel Aviv uh, going down to bring this stuff or bringing his material no longer. You have to go through a certain place. And uh, <coughs> the system was, is, was and is still back to back. In other words, the thick goods have to be unloaded, Palestinian goods have to be unloaded from the Palestinian uh, lorry, and then they have to be transferred to the Israel lorry and loaded on that. There is no direct movement of the goods. Uh, obviously, that this makes uh, trade less, uh, less profitable and therefore affects the economy. Now, there was really basically progressive unraveling of economic integration. I have to add that some of these uh, security measures had the extra characteristics that were often arbitrary, unexpected, what one day would go, what the other day wouldn't go, quite often decided by people on the ground, not necessarily by, by <coughs> policy or something of this sort, which made it, of course, even, even worse. If I, may, if I may tell an anecdote, I worked for a student in Jerusalem, the early 50s, I worked for part-time for some American investor. And he complained to me one day, he said, one can't do business here. I said, why? Well, he said, you know, there are countries where I know exactly the price of everybody, from the prime minister down to the doorman. There are countries where if you suggest uh, a bribe, uh, they will immediately call the police. Now, here I don't know, when I go to a guy in some office, if I suggest a if I want such a bribe, will he throw me out? And if I suggest a bribe, will he pick up the phone and call the police? And with such uncertainty, it's, it's impossible to, to operate. <laughs> so this is a different type of uncertainty, but the rules change every day. We don't know whether it's the whim of the guy at the barrier or if it's something more. It's, it certainly has got an adverse effect. Uh, so, and the results I'll show in a moment. I want to add that uh, these things uh, became even worse after the second intifada. There was in, in 2002 there was an Israeli incursion, um, military incursion into the West Bank, and since then there are a lot, there are a lot of road, road checks and road blocks. The terms are sometimes uh, misunderstood. A road check is a road check. There are soldiers that stand that they, they can uh, inspect the goods or whatever. A road block is simply that the road to some Arab village or town is being blocked by a huge amount of stones and, uh, and earth and so on, so the vehicles cannot pass it. And this, of course, again, has, has a very high economic cost. For, there are always ways around, but you have to, to go around for three hours instead of 15 or 20 minutes, obviously that this has got a certain cost. Also, no investor will come and invest unless they are sure that they can, that the goods will, they will, can access the market for the goods, the goods will arrive in the market on time, in a good shape, and that the raw materials will arrive on time in good shape, and that the workers will report for work in time. So under these uh, circumstances, of course, there was very little, if I can say so, uh, investment. So now look at the table you saw before. The first two columns are the ones you saw before. <coughs> this very nice change, the doubling or the convergence between the Palestinian and the Israeli economy from one-tenth of it to in terms, in terms of income per head from one-tenth of the Israeli economy, sorry, I should use that, to almost one-quarter of the Israeli economy in terms of income per head, which is, uh, which is the relevant, I think, uh, magnitude for, uh, for, uh, for convergence. And let's see what happens after that. 
and look at the size of the economy. By 98, you are almost back to square one. By 2004, we're roughly, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, uh, vouch here for the, for the cipher after the decimal dot, but uh, it's more or less the same. And this is the situation fairly lately. It has now improved slightly, so don't start weeping, but still it's pretty awful. Um, now, what <coughs> here we have got the opposite effect, of course. It was the, if you want, unscrambling of downwards. It was if we first saw a, the semblance of peace in certain aspects. I'm not trying to say that it was the first 20 years were peaceful or were peace. Were peaceful, they were not peace. But as far as economics are concerned, they had the characters, some characters of peace. Occupation created them at the beginning. And what seemed to be, when, curiously enough or paradoxically enough, it was what was to be the beginning of, a, of the end of occupation, the establishment of the personal authority and so on, uh, was followed by economic alienation. Now I have to go to a saying which I am rather cynical about. I should have put it in red. The idea that people who do business with each other don't shoot at each other. Oh, really? There was, I think that before the First World War, France and England traded a lot with Germany. I think the same was true before the Second World War. So now if you took the two intifadas, the same story. The first intifada came after a period of considerable prosperity. It was not caused, Tom Friedman of the, of the New York Times tried to wheedle out of me a statement that the, that the intifada was the result of a, a worsening of economic situation. It wasn't. It wasn't. If you looked at the crowd in Tahrir Square, and I'm sure all of you watched, they were not the poorest of the poor. You have to have a full, first of all, a full belly to have the luxury of demonstrating. So, uh, so this idea that if people do, and there's a tremendous, there's a whole industry. There's one of the listeners here yesterday was forced to listen to a whole day of people saying how wonderful will be business joint business ventures, uh, Israel Palestinian joint ventures for, for the peace process, right? So, now we have got evidence of two intifadas, two world wars, it's the other way around. It's peace which is conducive to the economy, not the other way around. Uh, may I add, incidentally, I think I still have got, a, yeah, I still have got some minutes. Uh, two things, what, what unusual, usually people bring the example of the European Union, steel and coal community. I've got news for you. When Jean Monnet first dreamt up the idea of the steel and coal community, that was, he was in Washington at the time, in 45, before the end of the Second World War, it was with the intention of denying Germany the access to the coal, taking away the Ruhr and the Saar from them, so that they won't be able to, to have a heavy industry, or industry at all. There was the Morgenthau Club, which wanted to turn them into, into an agrarian economy. And, and um, later, that was and, and acquiring this call for France. And later it was transposed in a way, but even so, even if the idea incidentally had been what people claim, uh, an idea of having a united Europe or something of the sort that won't fight, I think political scientists will correct me, I'm not political scientists, that the real reason France and Germany cooperated was the fear of the USSR, not the love of each other. Fear is a much stronger, apparently, uh, incentive in such things 
than sympathy. Now, what's happening lately and where we go are going in the future? I think I still have got about... Oh, wonderful. <laughs> First of all, in the last two years, there were considerable economic improvement in the West Bank, not in Gaza, well, in 2010 also in Gaza, but, uh, but in the West Bank. The verdict on Gaza is still not, not yet in. Uh, there's something, and I'll mention that to you in a moment, because it's interesting. Uh, now, why was, uh, why was this economic improvement? One has to ask oneself. First of all, uh, they have been lucky. They have been acquired at some stage. The finance minister was an economic uh, technician, so to say, a technocrat. He was the, before the, the IMF representative to the Palestinians. And he managed to put his hand, not personally, but uh, the treasury's hand, on all the, on the various money sources of the Palestinian Authority, which before that were uh, going in various devious ways. That was one thing. And also, uh, I'll say something in a second, but uh, something different. But uh, uh, the result was that the Palestinian security forces, what we call the General Dayton, General Dayton is an American general who trained Palestinian police in Jordan, and they put uh, an end to lawlessness in northern, uh, northern West Bank. It was tremendously important because under the guise of being patriotic, anti-Israeli terror, you know, fighters, people used to extort. It's quite common in, under such circumstances. It's not particularly typical of the Palestinians, but still it isn't very conducive, neither to good order and not to economic uh, performance. Uh, secondly, there was some foreign aid in 2002, which allowed the Palestinian Authority to pay some arrears of civil servants. That was an injection of money into, into the economy. Uh, there was the easing of Israel restrictions on movement and access as part of Mr. Netanyahu's notion of an economic peace. Uh, which was really an attempt at conflict management as a substitute for trying to get to conflict resolution. But uh, this is limited in its possibility. And there was the relaxation of the blockade on Gaza, especially in 2010. As a matter of fact, the, the estimates at the moment is, and it's very, tells something, that uh, the Gaza, the, the whole Palestinian economy grew by about 9%, this year, which is quite respectable. But the West Bank grew by 3%, the economy of the West Bank, and the Gaza one by 29%, for a simple reason. It's a reactivation of idle capacity, which was, not, uh, uh, which was idle. So they didn't get the raw materials, the, 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 the Israeli war with Gaza, and so on. There is an old Jewish East European anecdote, which some of you might have heard, but it's relevant in this, in, in this case. And there's a guy who comes to his rabbi and says, Rabbi, our life are intolerable. I, my wife, our eight kids, and my mother-in-law on top of that, we all live in one room, and the stench is impossible, and one can't move. Rabbi looks at him and says, do you have a goat? He says, we have a goat. It's tied in the courtyard. Put her inside. Rabbi will die. Put her inside. Well, one can't debate with the rabbi, so... He did that. You can imagine that life didn't become much sweeter. So he was. He goes again to the rabbi. Says, "Rabbi saved us. I mean, that goat and that stench and it befouls the place. And I mean, my kids. And said, take the goat out." Uh -huh. A month later, he sees him in the synagogue. How is like, Oh, it's so wonderful. The air is so sweet. <laughs> so part of it was the effect of taking out the goat, in the sense that the Israel incursion, of course, had an adverse effect. You take it out, there's a positive effect, but it's not necessarily sustainable growth. And this is very uh, uh, 
if the data, which are still preliminary data, uh, are uh, correct, then uh, in fact, um, in Gaza, we are in uh, the West Bank, we already see growth only of 4%, which is just slightly tiny about the growth of population there, um, and not any dramatic growth. Well, the dramatic growth is in Gaza because they took the gold out. Simple as that. Now, in the future, unfortunately, there will be no going back to square one. Uh, there has been lots of trust on both sides, both, both among the leadership and even worse among the public. Uh, now, the, the wall, the barrier, whatever you want to call it, uh, makes possible a separation of the economies. Unlike the situation in 1994, where the Oslo Agreement was signed, now that's possible, one can have what, whatever, one can still have customs union, that's possible, but one doesn't have to have a customs union, because there's no, because there's a, a fence which prevents, can prevent goods from moving. Now, uh, therefore the trade agreements will be, arrangements will be much less integrative than they were, than they were in the past. At the best of cases, a free trade area agreement, people who would like to ask me about it, I'm ready to speak about it later, I just want to finish, which is a less integrative agreement than the customs union. They're not sure even about that. The Palestinian workers have been substituted by cheap labor from elsewhere. The Israeli employers discovered the joys of Thai and Chinese workers. And economic, the thing is that the economic implications are of very little effect, very little consequences to Israel. They are of tremendous consequences. They can be critical to the Palestinian economy simply because of the difference in sizes. Now, why you will see from that, the Palestinian economy has to create each year 40,000 new jobs net for the, addition of the, for the net addition to labor force. That's uh, deducting already people who retire, people who die, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, the largest Palestinian industrial state, Israeli Palestinian uh, industrial state, the Erez one, which was very famous at the time, uh, employed about 5,200 people on the spot and up to 2,000, that's being optimistic, provided employment for about 2,000 in Gaza itself. That means that to provide 40,000 jobs, one needs six such, five, six such uh, estates, new ones each year, each year. And there was tremendous offer. The President of Israel, Mr. Perez, for years have been trying to mobilize international assistance in building up these joint estates, which, uh, and uh, it, it, it is, it, it's, it's a positive thing, but it's a drop in the sea. Now, Palestinians also have to ex subsidize exports of labor services for the exports of labor, of labor, uh, the subsidies, sorry, the uh, exports of labor services by exports of the goods which this labor will produce in the Palestinian territories themselves. The smaller the economy, let's say sort of uh, truism, tri trivial truism of economics, the more it has to trade in order to achieve a certain standard of living. Let me give you, I mean, trade means exchange. And Adam Smith already described very neatly, well, very beautifully, why that depends on the size of the market. Now, why do we have to exchange? Well, suppose I had to produce myself all that I'm using. I'm not sure I would have been able to produce certainly as a car, possibly something similar to bicycle, after many years, and I, I would have been probably be wearing things that if I walked into the street like this today, I would have been arrested for indecent exposure or something of this sort. I mean, so 
This is tremendously important. Israel will for wrong be the main major trade partner for a very simple reason. The very small distances means that a lot of things can be traded, can be exported, which cannot be profitably exported over a longer distance because of the cost of transportation. I'll give you an example, building stone. So there was once an emir in the Gulf who wanted building his uh, palace to be built from stone from the Holy City, but still. And there is a guy, incidentally, who discovered near Hebron that he can cut local stone very thinly, polish it, and sell it as Hebron marble. And he had been huge success in exporting worldwide. And he had the prescience to open a factory in Jordan about half a year before the outbreak of the New York Second Intifada. So, but uh, on the whole, uh, but Palestinians, what they really need is access to, uh, to larger markets. Now, the Fayyad plan, you might have heard about it. Prime Minister Fayyad came out with a plan, which is called, the name of it is uh, quite uh, pretentious, ending the occupation, uh, establishing a state. Now, in a way, he took here a leaf from Zionist history. In, in, in Zionist history, there were two schools of thought. One was, they said, we need a state. We need a flag. We need an arm. It's called political Zionism, and that was the man who is considered the, the founder of modern Zionism, Theodor Herzl. That was his attitude. He didn't attach any importance to actual colonization. He wanted a charter, first from the Turkish Sultan, later perhaps for the British in Sinai, and so on. Uh, the mainstream, which was more main, mainstream and left, had so-called practical Zionists, had a much simpler uh, slogan. Do you know what a dunam is? Which is uh, one quarter of an acre. Thousand square meters. Thousand square meters. the metric ones. Original is not metric. And uh, so the, the uh, slogan was another goat and another dunam. And it was another goat and another dunam which built the institutions which made it possible for the state to be established. Now I'll be frank. It was easier for us to do it under British rule than it was for the Palestinians under under our rule. But the Palestinians did not try. I mean, the usual attitude was not doing anything positive, especially economically, would mean, would make it easier to accept occupation, therefore we are against it. And this Fayyad broke. And if we one read his plan, there is nothing there practical about how to end the occupation. And there are a lot of lacuna in the establishing a state for reasons which I can understand the subject on which he didn't want to start a public debate at that stage or on the other hand which we have to negotiate with Israel at some stage. It's a combination of high vision and fairly minute steps but very important, minute but still important, so that's the right attitude. Uh, he would probably opt for improved Paris Protocol plan or regime but the question is will Israel be amenable? Their growing attitude in Israel is to cut the Palestinians off. Let them go to the east, let them go to, to the uh, back to the, you know, I remember years ago, on that occasion which I quoted, I want to show our Nabil Shah, who is certainly a highly intelligent man, you know, the Palestinian <coughs> speaker, for, at some stage foreign minister, saying more or less, I'm slightly subverting it, oh yes, we'll continue to call to, to trade with Israel so that these Jews won't die of hunger, but we'll be back in the fold of the great Arab nation. Well, that fold turned out to be a rather cold fold, if I may say so, and with very little comfort economically. There might be one thing which might be different. Iraq might prove uh, might uh, turn out to be a market. That's the one market I can think of which can really be uh, a big market for the Palestinians. Finally, there is an interesting question. And the question is uh, as following. 
the you know Israel developed industrial base during the Second World War. It had some beginnings, and it was the main base which could supply uh, goods to the British Army and to the neighboring countries, because the, sh the shipping was uh, very restricted. But immediately at the end of the war, uh, the Arab League introduced the Arab, uh, uh, the Arab uh, boycott of Israel, and that market collapsed, and a lot of firms went down. But Israel then had no, cho no choice but to go after world markets. In other words, it turned to other markets, it turned northward to the markets of developing country, of the developed countries, which in the long run turned to be a very uh, successful decision. Now in the Palestinian case, there, as I said, there were a lot to be traded with, for obvious reasons, that shouldn't be given up. But because of the difficulties, there is some odd chance that they might try to jump the barrier. How can they jump the barrier? By going into things like information technology. This is something which does not require... I remember when I used to get books from abroad, I used to be called to the post office to pay, to pay value-added taxes. Uh, twice or thrice I had to explain that these were my reprints or off-prints of my articles and they relented. Then I started getting it in the form of uh, diskettes. So one or two discates, nothing. But if I got the whole pack, you have to buy it to pay value-added tax. But now I get these attached files. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. So this opens possibilities. And there, there is a nucleus of information technology in the Palestinian economy. But this is sort of, you know, maybe wishful thinking. I think I spoke long enough. May I say that I think it would be a good idea to open a window because I am falling asleep. Yeah, I hope you didn't feel that. I hope you didn't feel that. Yep. Yeah. And I need, I need uh, the chairperson. The chair, back to the chair. The chair is standing. The chair should okay. be sitting. Thank you very much indeed. And in view of the fact there may be great interest, we've decided to take four questions at a time, so All if right. your memory is long enough. All right. So please, if you could introduce yourself briefly, so we know where you're coming from. Okay. Just, I noticed uh, that the, the history that you projected yeah. uh, from the beginning to end, that we started out in so far as incomes and share of incomes are concerned, we were quite high, then we became quite low. I wonder if the image would change if we take into account the reduction in the wealth of the Palestinians initially as a result of the occupation, specifically the confiscation of land, which has lowered the wealth profile of the Palestinian and may have forced him into conditions, you know, the push factor of, of the Labour Party here, into conditions of abject poverty, which had actually rendered him and, uh, into, into, into the Labour later in Israel. And all this politics, in essentially, that would make probably the argument that there is a law of economic operating outside the law of politics uh, not so significant, because it seems all along the politics of occupation, and may I say so, was feeding a, 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 a politics and economics of occupation, where at the end, as we can see now, the Palestinian economy is completely dependent on aid, and it's imprisoned. Uh, uh, by the Israeli economy, where the capital that flows into this Palestinian economies is recycled to the 
because of all the trade is carried out with, with Israel, is recycled through the Israeli economy. And in fact, the occupation seems to pay. Uh, do, you see, do, you, do, you, do you see things from this perspective? If you link politics to economics, do you think the politics of occupation to be very beneficial in Israel because they've resorted to this popularization of the Palestinian economy? Can I invite anyone else who's on this kind of issue to intervene, or you want to? Would you like to yes, take I that like, one? Like it's quite lengthy. It was a treatise. Like I'm itself. sorry. Do you mind if I do it sitting down? No, no, I. No, 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 no. You're raising, you're raising a point. So, just give me a question. Oh, sorry. Yes, sorry. The microphone is here. Surprisingly, I thought it was I don't know what. The, uh, the, 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 the question is, uh, is, is legitimate. Uh, however, you see the great increase in Palestinian income relative to Israel was before there were any significant land confiscations whatsoever. That's number one. Secondly, the uh, significant land confiscations, if at all, were in the Gaza Strip. The, the, those settlements which were removed by Sharon, they occupied some agricultural land. Was that? A third of the territory almost. In, in, uh, yeah, no, no. In, in, in Gaza, your argument would make some sense. Uh, not in the West Bank, because there, first of all, even now, the Israeli settlements don't occupy uh, significant uh, Palestinian agricultural land. Mm. Agricultural land. There's a question with the wall, and uh, I, we can discuss the wall later if you don't mind, because that did. did uh, did uh, take up some land, also it separates some Palestinians from the land, which is effectively the same thing. Well, hold on for a moment. But this is much later. And, and um, in the years of this rapid growth, of this 20 years of rapid growth, there was hardly any confiscation of land. So this isn't the case. But as you raise the problem, I want to tell you something. It's some figure which I wanted to mention, and you are giving me the opportunity of doing that. And sorry that I'll answer you with economics. One of the fascinating things was the, the change in the change in uh, ah, I lost it. No, here it is. The change in the in agriculture, and it was unbelievable. You know, traditional agri agriculture, traditional peasants are supposed not to respond quickly to economic uh, uh, incentives and so on. Before you could say Jack Robinson, the Palestinians went out of field crops, which means growing grains and went into, went into uh, as far as land is concerned, uh, they went into um, growing vegetables and growing fruit because there was suddenly a big market for that. They later exported these things also east of the Jordan, but it started with this very market. Secondly, the amount of, uh, of land uh, farmed between uh, 68 and 94, all right, a changed by I think 1%, decreased by 1%, which are probably marginal lands rather than confiscated lands, but I cannot vouch for that. I cannot vouch for that. It could have been confiscated. Could you say 1%? Even less, even less of the, of the arable land. And uh, that was uh, possibly 1%, but uh, order of magnitude. <coughs> and as I said, it might have been even, I, I suspect it was more well, moving. Most of the West Bank is arid land. Was that? Most of the West Bank is arid land. It's not arable. No, no, arable mean, it does not mean that you cannot grow things there. It's, you, you, are, you are thinking of irrigated land. Arable means that, it's, that it is cultivable. So 
as I said, the amount of cultivable land did not, did, not, did not decrease practically. On the other hand, the output increased tremendously, but tremendously. I can tell you that vegetable output in tons, and not forget about prices, only just on the physical measure, was 3.6 times as, as great as it was at the beginning. That, uh, on the other hand, uh, the, uh, the uh, growth of uh, field crops, the, amount of field, the output of field crops remained the same, though the quantity of land used for that halved, because they imported, they imported very technical, technical uh, things from Israel. But simply by observation, you know, I remember going into a cooperative in Dirbalach in Gaza. And I had a good, uh, I had a very simple rule to <coughs> classify entrepreneurs. If they spoke English and didn't speak Hebrew, unless they were returnees from the Gulf, which means that they were young, they were, I call them the ancien regime. If they spoke Hebrew but did not speak English, these were people who started as workers in Israel, looked and said, heaven's sake, we can do it myself, we can do it probably even better. So in agriculture, drip irrigation, which is very little water, fertilizers, and a hothouse. And by hothouse, I don't mean just the big things. And the big things can be just metal frames with some uh, uh, plastic uh, covering, not necessarily glass, but sleeves of uh, plastics that high, under which you grow strawberries, which is one of the, even now, an important <coughs> export of, uh, of Gaza to Europe. So th because of all these things, agriculture flourished. You see, my Palestinian colleagues often were pointing out that the proportion at some stage of agriculture didn't go up or it went out in the, in the national output. And that was a sign that, uh, that uh, agriculture was badly hit by, by, by Israeli uh, occupation. And I said, don't look at the proportion of the, of the out of all. Look at the output of agriculture. I checked it before, before even preparing this paper. I wanted to mention it before, and I'm glad you provided me. So this was not, this was not the case. There was no popularization. This started, I'll tell you exactly one. It first of all started in 96, after these attacks on public transportation, where the Israeli government uh, reacted very strongly, where the number of Palestinian workers in Israel were halved from 120,000 to 60,000 within one year, immediately, from, from, to, from, one day, from today to tomorrow. So, and then it revived again. The Palestinian economy has been since 94 on a roller coaster. It revived again, again fell down after the, after the outbreak of the Second Intifada and so on. So this is the situation, but there was no popularization. Um, this is, no, sorry, my this graph shows you relative to Israel. Yes. This isn't a bilateral discussion. Do have a quick comeback, though, and then we'll move on. Yeah. But, but the, the point of the matter is, there is it's relative, as you said. But when you include the income effect as a result of land confiscation progressively, either in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, the figures that you have shown would be reduced significantly. Uh, because land confiscation, in, in, if you take the settlements and all the roads and everything, that as an end result, which is now more than 50% of the total territory of the West Bank, then you, we do have, as a result of, if you take the dollar value of this wealth, mm -hmm. And there are surveys that were conducted initially as to the reason why so many people would start working this way. And they almost, almost 90% of those who were asked these questions initially, they said, we lost our land, we were forced out of our land, and we become wage labor. And the fact that agriculture 
has, has progressed. It has also progressed throughout the region. The same could be said about the agricultural output per tonnage in, in, in Jordan, and the Green Revolution was growing steadfastly. But that doesn't explain the fact that to, on the export-import side, there were restrictions. They were not allowed to trade with the outside world. They, uh, they That's not true. I'm sorry. That's simply not true. The last sentence is not true. First of all, they could yeah. export via the, of the, the bridges of Jordan. Mm -hmm. Gaza exported tremendous amounts for years through Israeli harbors. But the figures that you produce yourself show that 90 to 100 percent of the trade is conducted with Israel. No, so, I mean, it, it's not necessarily. It, it, it's uh, uh, sorry, sorry. Can you yeah, just let him? No, no. Finish. I just one sentence. Yes, yes, yes. John yep. The great exodus from workers in, in agriculture to Israel occurred in the first year. So there was no confiscation of land. But if anybody, excuse me, if anybody gave such an answer, he gave it because it might, he thought that the person is asking him thought it was not politically correct to work in Israel. There was such an attitude. And then you would say, oh, they took away my land. Because there was no land taken away in the years were massive. Look, by the time the Israeli uh, restrictions on labor came into power, even then, there was hardly any, except for Gaza, any, any uh, land, uh, land confiscation. Okay, I think I'll have to call a halt to this because it might be elucidated through other comments. So we've got two here. So first you and then you. Sorry, can you identify yourself, please? Yeah, my name is okay. Thank you. What's the financial system of the West Bank? Whose currency do they use? Are these both Jordanian and Israeli? What's the banking system? Well, okay, hang on, we're taking oh, several at once, right. sorry. And the yeah, gentleman good. next to you. So, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I am Khalid al and the media currency the embassy of Sudan. Mahaban. Northern Sudan. Your argument did not convince me because you seem to assume that one can divide or separate economics from politics. Mm. If, if what you have shown us here, on the board is correct. Then, why did the uh, Intifada take place? Why did the Palestinians, they were, your argument seems to say that occupation is good for the Palestinians, and maybe I could deduce from that also, why does why doesn't Israel with its atomic bomb occupy also Jordan and Egypt and uh, help them live happily the way the Palestinians were living happily under um, Israeli occupation. I think you're putting words into the speaker's mouth now. Okay. Despite the presence of assassinations, uh, land grabs, and all sorts of restrictions which you mildly mentioned here. Okay, so your question is essentially you can't divorce economics from politics. Do we have any other takers so we can yes. write two more uh, over here? Just a question. With your name, yeah, please. Jerry Adler. Okay. Uh, I do research in the Arab-Israeli conflict the legal aspect. Uh, the comment that was made by this gentleman who just left. Did I hear him say the land confiscations were up 50% or 5%? He said 50, and it's, it's, it's wrong. 50, it's wrong. 5 0 or 1 5? I think he said 50, but I might be wrong. Would you no, like I to comment on that, on that figure, please? All right. Okay, and it's one more if your memory no, can help you. Gentleman behind. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you. My name is Alan Mathir, and I'm the Thank you very much for the presentation. We met yesterday, actually, in, in Oxford. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Ali Badri mentioned one thing at the end, which is kind of the, the role of international aid and that it 
also subsidized the occupation in some sense. And when he was said, when he was talking about that, I just remembered a, a publication by Onyktat few two years ago, I believe. And they mentioned a very terrifying figure at that point, which said that 40 verse 40, 40 percent of international aid go directly and indirectly to the Israeli economy through different channels, through either conditions. So I, I, I wanted to ask um, one question on that thing. And if, if you may allow me to ask Very quickly. Uh, another question referring to Fayyad Black that you mentioned. Uh, at some point, and to, to less extent now, Fayyad is very favored Palestinian leader uh, in the eyes of the Israelis. And he, he took the platform to talk in Herzliya, and he was the Palestinian thing going on to Paris, and all of this. But the, the moment he, he started boycotting the, the uh, settlements product and burning them, all of this discourse changed. What, where do you think it is going? What would be the Israeli uh, view from the economical point of view of Oyar and his plan? Okay, that's right. enough to go. You can answer them in any order or all together right. if you like. All right. Uh, I'll answer first of all at the expense of the question which you raised. I was not saying that if you can divide politics from economics. I was just showing how, economic, how politics affect economics. Why the deterioration? Why the deterioration? That's one thing. Secondly, I certainly was not making a cause for occupation is a beneficial thing. But there is a paradox which economists here present will tell you that things don't always come in the same direction. Things can have a positive side and a negative side. Occupation politically, psychologically, whatever you want, may be very bad. But economically, in the case of the Palestinians, it happened to be good for a long time. That's number one. Secondly, <coughs> secondly, uh, no, I'm, I'm losing my thread. And, uh, I think it was important what I wanted to tell you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, so it, it was not in any way uh, neither justifying occupation nor saying, ah, why did they, why did they intifada us? Because, yeah, I'm surprised you were asking that. Because apparently people have got other concerns except their belly. Don't you think so? So they might have been quite happy economically and nevertheless revolted. I'm giving that credit. I've got some respect for them, which you apparently don't. Um, question about banking, about the financial system. The financial system is a curiosity. <coughs> because it's a curiosity. Uh, currencies, there are three legal tenders. <laughs> there is the uh, Jordanian JD, Jordanian Dinar, which is used mainly for bigger transactions, uh, things like real estate and so on. There's the Israeli shekel, which is used for everyday transactions. And there is, practically speaking, the dollar. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, and for long, for some time, at the beginning, Gaza was also the Egyptian pound. Mm -hmm. So, now banking. There was a problem because the uh, Arab banks which existed, both local and uh, from Arab countries, um, in, Israel, in uh, the occupied territories, in the West Bank and Gaza in 67, refused to submit to the supervision of the Bank of Israel. Now, you can't, ha you can't, you can't have that. I mean, uh, an economy cannot allow other people to start, to start producing its own money. So that changed with the signature of an uh, with the peace treaty with Egypt. So some uh, Egyptian banks were opened, and then after, after um, Oslo, after the, the quite a number of Arab banks which are opened. Is the Arab bank there, the Jordanian Arab bank? I think so. I think so it is. Yeah. What's that? I think it is. Yeah, yes. yeah, as far yeah. as I remember it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another, there's one problem. 
that these banks are very conservative. They put on, keep a very high liquidity. They're very conservative in, in, in their lending. And the reason is that it's difficult to, you see, they first of all, they usually give uh, loans not on the basis of forecasts of profitability, but rather as against uh, collateral. Do we have still a few minutes? Yeah, against collateral. Uh, and um, the land registration in the West, the West Bank is still uh, very, very poor. So it's, it, it, it's difficult to establish ownership for purposes of, uh, of, of, of obtaining, uh, providing collateral. So the title, the title was unclear. Oh, that's, that's exactly, that's, that's land registration. The British never finished it. They started in Gaza, and in Gaza it's all right, for instance, but not in the mm -hmm. West Bank. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the financial system. There is a Palestinian authority, which has now been more and more talking about issuing a Palestinian currency that was not allowed to them under the Paris Protocol for political reasons. I mean, they were allowed postage stamps and not, uh, not <laughs> currency, I don't know why. This obviously is going to change in the near future, so I won't but they are, they are debating what type of... Uh, all I can say is that I think the Palestinians should have been very grateful to Israel for not allowing Mr. Arafat to have the printing process of money. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. No, sorry, no. There was another question before. Yeah, you Thank asked you. a question. Sorry. What was your question? About a figure which I don't know. I the percentage of expropriations. So, so, uh, can I add an additional to that, which is why is there so much, you know, so much, you know, th this is a very politicized and political point, how much land has been taken, who had title to it, how much it is deemed, obviously, first in the of West all, First of all, first of all, how much is taken up by roads. Two or yeah. two, of two different types of land grabs. Yeah. One is, when it comes to the negotiations, to describing the negotiations with Israel, the Palestinians show that they are left, will be left, in the best of cases, 22% of historical Palestine. So that's, that's one story that has nothing to do with confiscation of land whatsoever. It has to do with, with the war of 48 and with the peace settlement now. Yeah. And here in the peace settlement, incidentally, Israel wants to retain some land where some settlements are, uh, and, but uh, in exchange for uh, similar lands, uh, similar quantity and quality of land somewhere else. So yeah. it's really basically the results of the, of the 48 war. So that's, excuse me, that's not, that's not uh, confiscation. Mm. That's, a, that's a different story. Now, of the rest, I don't think it's 50%. Uh, there's a problem with the fence, the wall, the barrier, whatever you want to mm. call it, I really think, that, uh, and that in some places it does not exactly follow the green line. And uh, what's more, that it sometimes, as I said, cuts off people from their fields. Mm. Uh, but it's far from being 50%. It's mm. uh, completely, completely yeah. off the mark, completely mm. off the mark. There was another question I wanted to answer. So there's a gentleman behind. I can't remember what you asked. I'm so sorry. In the stripy shirt. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, you asked two questions. What was yeah, the other one? The first question was about the and 24% indirectly go. Oh, yes. That's, that, yeah, I'm glad for the question. Look, you have to realize there's one thing which I have to explain. And I think it will be the last explanation, but it needs explanation. It's an yes. economic point. Five minutes. If a country has got an import, sorry, if a country receives aid from abroad, the only way of receiving this aid in real terms, not in the sense that it will be in a bank in Switzerland, is to have an import surplus. Mm. You use that money to buy more mm. than you can in exchange for your exports. Mm. So now the Palestinians had both very large foreign assistance and the earnings of workers abroad. So because of that, they've got a very, very high import surplus. Most of the surplus, that's true, is with Israel. Now, how do they pay for the surplus? 
That's exactly the way the assistance come in. The assistance and the, and the wages of, of Palestinians in Israel. It's not just us. It's, it, it's, it's two things. No, they, they, these monies are used to import more than, they ex than the country exports. All right? Now, if you trade mainly with Israel, it's not surprising that most of this import surplus will be with Israel. So that's how this, both the, the, the incomes of the earnings of the workers and the foreign assistance ends ultimately in Israel. But the money, the goods, the goods on, in the contrary, incidentally, Israel loses the goods. If it gets that money, if it's got an export surplus to the Palestinians, it's giving up more goods than it gets. I'm not sure that I pursued you. It's, it's a basic economic thing. It goes back to the great dispute about the German reparations in 1922, <coughs> where Keynes formulated very beautiful the so-called um, not transformation problem. Now I've forgotten the English term for it. Uh, but uh, suppose somebody gives assistance to the Palestinian Authority. How does that assistance come to the Palestinian Authority? They get a a check on a, on a bank account somewhere in, uh, in Geneva, let's say. Now, and they transfer it to their own account. If that's the end of the story, did anything happen to the Palestinian Authority? In, in Palestine, forget about the authority. Did anything happen on the ground in the West Bank or Gaza? Is there more of anything? No. There are more bank accounts, but there are no, no more goods, no more services. Now, the ways to use these services, this money, to import or to exchange it. I mean, the authority itself can exchange it for shekels or dinars or something in order to pay its workers. That's irrelevant. But who will buy it? Importers who want to import. So we'll have more imports than exports. We'll have an import service. A country which exports more than it that imports is giving up goods. It's an old, you see, um, mercantilist idea that if you export more than you import, you become richer. Yes, because you amass reserves of gold or something of this sort. I don't know whether I pursued it. Right, so I think we can have we have to have very quick interventions because we do have to be out. We haven't had ladies before. Yes, okay, so can we take these as the last yes, we certainly need questions from the women. So we'll take you, Fawaz, the two ladies at the front and gentlemen at the back. Can we make it fairly swift though? No um, no more than a question. You may have noticed that I did not accept the title which you suggested for my ah. talk, which was the Economic Foundations of the Israeli-Palestinian Peace. Because I don't believe, I believe that economics are important, don't misunderstand me. Look, the two societies rubbed shoulders in that period because of economic context. But how important is that? How important is that really for building peace? It's the other way around. It's peace which makes possible economic um, uh, development. How do you explain then, Prime Minister No, this is no. This is first of all conflict management. Look, mm. there is the belief that if you improve economic relations, there is something that you get a more stable society. 
more stable society will be less inclined. It doesn't mean that it will always be pacific, but it will be less inclined to indulge in, uh, in hostilities. It, there will be fewer uh, arguments that uh, life is impossible, and so on and so forth. So this idea was, first of all, our reaction to the Second Intifada was, was very harsh. You see, in Israel, we've got the tendency to use a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. So uh, without thinking, what's the price to the other side? The, the, these, uh, many of these steps are justified. I mean, it isn't pleasant when uh, people b b are blown up. And I can tell you there was a time in Jerusalem, my neighborhood is now very fashionable coffee houses. I used to go and sit in the most fashionable coffee house there, five o'clock with a book for a beer or a coffee. There were three persons there, three people, including me, at, in a place which used to be a hundred every day on the side. People were afraid to go to coffees. People didn't take public transportation. It's terrorizing the population. So now, whether some of these things would later be relaxed, whether they could have been done in a more delicate manner, there's a tendency not to take into account the price to the other side. That's quite clear. But uh, what he rightly thought that improving the situation will be, first of all, be something you could show the, the Americans and to others, look, we are doing something. Yeah. Also, it might create a more positive attitude towards negotiation. I'm not saying there is a, there is a feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is not clear, as clear-cut as I put it, mm -hmm. but basically it is peace which is an incentive to economic ties and not the other way around. Sorry, we're going to have to speed up even more, but um, which one of you, was it both of you at the front, ladies? Yes. Yeah. May I say that I agree with you in principle, mm. but I'm human. Mm. <laughs> no, I know I am as well. And out of humanity, I thought, you know, as we go older, I think we can be more capable of listening to each other. And yes, oh. <laughs> and I think that's the case. I am very old, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I'm afraid in a business where the dialogue of the deaf seems to dominate, um, mm. I would like to share your optimism, but I'm not sure I can. There's another question. Um, uh, gentlemen at the back, dialogue of the deaf. <laughs> Oh, sorry, you're being funny. Very clever. Uh, gentleman at the back, and then we uh, were... Yeah. Um, I just wanted to know if you could uh, tell us a bit more about the role of water in Palestine. Ooh, sorry, you've only got three minutes. The role of what? Water. Water. Oh, yes, water is a sensitive subject. Yes. Israel, yeah, Israel, look, Israel, uh, you see, we, we share most of the aquifers of the underground water uh, are, are, are joint, are common. And Israel... Uh, put a, sorry, I didn't mention that. Put a lot of restrictions on the Palestinian uh, drilling of Palestinian drilling wells, for example, because they wanted to preserve that uh, that water. Uh, and the the amount of water they consume, uh, willy-nilly, is much, 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 much smaller than what is consumed in Israel, uh, especially in agriculture. So um, this is a very sensitive subject. It will have to be solved. However, uh, I want. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mention that. You see, I made a list of restrictions. I could go on for hours because there's some very many petty ones on top but I should have mentioned the water and thank you for raising it but um, the thing is that um, the whole idea that there will be wars because of water uh, is really economic nonsense 
because there is a huge reservoir of water, huge. It's called the Mediterranean. Yeah. And the salination, uh, we, know, we know the price. It's true that it depends on the price of oil. When price of oil goes up, the salination becomes more uh, expensive. On the other hand, the technology is improving all the time. So uh, there is an American professor at MIT who tried to estimate the value of the annual value of the water in dispute. Came with a figure like $200 million. How much? Two hundred million dollars or something of that. Really? Yeah, but it would have been probably fifty percent higher now because of the price of oil. He did some years ago, which which sounds yes. completely ridiculous. So he may be wrong, but these are the orders of magnitude, and the quarrel will be tremendous because people regard water as something. Immediately think that if they won't have water, or the Palestinians will take some of the water, everybody will be dying of thirst in Israel. You know, you've got such attitudes. So. Uh, it can, it can become quite a public issue and a lot of debates and so on, but basically this shouldn't be a problem. But you're right, I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't raise it. I didn't mention it. All I can say is you don't really want to be drinking desalinated water, but I do understand it's for other purposes. <laughs> right. You don't, you don't know, it's much better, excuse me, to recycle the water where you yes. think where it came from. Uh, well, that's why we seem to be polluting ourselves with this. Anyway, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along, and thank you very much, Professor. <laughs>